This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Today's guest joined me way back in October of 2020. I've been holding on to this recording and I'm so happy to finally be sharing it with you. Dr. Chelsea Cook is one of the coolest women in science that I have ever met. She's an assistant professor of biological sciences at Marquette University, and she runs the Cook Lab, where she and her team investigate environmental and genetic factors that influence social behavior in honeybees. Her passion for science is contagious, and we get down and nerdy in this episode. Everyone, meet Dr. Chelsea Cook. Hello there. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I'm joining you from my greenhouse. I was going to ask, is that an elaborate background, or are you actually in a greenhouse I'm in a greenhouse. We installed it this summer, and I love just coming out here. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, first of all, I um, I found out about you because I uh, in my Google News feed that I subscribe to, I have areas of interest, and obviously beekeeping is one of them. And an yep. article popped up about uh, research that you and your team were doing about curious bees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the um, the really fun things about that research um, is that. The lab that I was doing my postdoc in, um, so it's Brian Smith's lab at at Arizona State University, Um, he's really interested in kind of behavioral, like very uh, specific individual behaviors and understanding how the brain mediates behavior. So he's like, he's a behavioral neuroscientist. And so a lot of his work kind of focuses on how brains lead to behavior. So what's happening in the brain and what's happening in the individual uh, when it's behaving. And I am a behavioral ecologist, so I'm interested in that part. But then how does the individual behaving then lead to some like real ecological consequence, right? So what does the brain doing this thing and the individual doing this thing mean about the how it's living and surviving in the real world, right? What what is actually going on? And I think that's really, I think I, I love the the I loved working in that lab because it was really fun. And of course he's interested in that stuff as well, but you gotta kind of focus as a scientist. You have to, <laughs> you know, pick pick your niche and stick with it, much like animals do. It's like there would be too many rabbit holes to go down. <laughs> so many. Yeah, you could just go on forever and then you're, you know, jack of all trades instead of master of one. So yeah. So um, I think that it, it was really fun to work in his lab and get that perspective of the brain and an individual, but he was really excited to hire me as, uh, as a researcher to kind of bring, bring what he has seen, you know, over the last two, three decades of his work, um, and see what's actually happening in the field. And so what we did, so we took this very specific learning behavior, this cognitive behavior that he was really interested in, and he's done him and the other researchers that have come and gone in his lab, other postdocs and graduate students um, and undergrads, you know, a whole host of, of researchers uh, really honed in on this behavior and the genetics of it, some of the, the uh, neurobiological underpinnings of it, um, and 
I really wanted to kind of back it up and take the, the, you know, mile high view Mm -hmm. and see what was actually, what, why does this behavior happen? Why do we see these bees that differ in their, in this phenotype, in this behavior? And so what we did then, so we, we have characterized this behavior in the lab in these very controlled settings um, and tested these bees. And we were able to identify that the that reproductive individuals, the queens and the male bees uh, in the colonies exhibit, can, we can test them for this behavior, this curious versus, uh, or like, yeah, focused versus curious uh, phenotype. And then we tested the offspring of those workers and found that most of the offspring um, or from the reproductive individuals, rather, most of the offspring exhibit the same uh, behavior, the curious versus focused behavior that their parents do. So that allows us, that, that's one of the things in, in the honeybee world, and as, as I'm sure you know as a beekeeper, is that a, a bee, an individual bee is really fascinating, they're really cool, but it's not the colony, right? The colony right. is what interacts with the environment, the colony is what's doing its job, um, you know, the colony is kind of, the, it, we, we all know the, the super organism, right? So right. it's the thing interacting with the environment. Um, and, you know, collecting all this food, doing the pollination. There's so much focus, like as beekeepers, when we talk about behaviors that we want in our bees, there's really heavy focus on hygiene and grooming and that varroa sensitivity and not so much about their learning behaviors and what you're talking about, more curious personality traits. Yeah, exactly. And that and and this is also one of those we, we focus this uh, we focus on those behaviors, um, a lot of those behaviors, like you mentioned, like hygienic behavior um, at the colony level. So how are the how is the colony behaving? What does the colony look like overall? Um, that can be really hard, especially in natural, you know, like open mated colonies or more natural colonies um, where you know, the, the queen is mating with up to like 15 different drones, right? 15 different males. So um, it is, it's interesting to be able to test both the queens and the male bees for this behavior and actually give some credence to what, what they're actually doing and what the what the drones are actually doing, which not almost yes. none of the work that we do looked at drones. Let's so talk about that the was boys. Also really interesting. <laughs> let's yeah, talk about the talk, bee yeah, boys. Let, I mean, I imagine them just waking up and rolling out of the hive and going to the DCA and waiting around. Yes, absolutely. And that you know, it's so funny because when we work with drones, we have to be very different with them compared to queens and workers. So in terms of their learning behavior, drone, we will start out with 50 drones and maybe 10 of them will actually learn in, in, a, in a quantifiable way. Uh, whereas wow. queens, every <laughs> single one of them learn in a quantifiable way. We can say they're curious or they're focused. And the, the drones are just like, Sometimes, like half of them will die just because they they can't deal with the assays that we're doing. They're not very they're they're somewhat strenuous. You know, we collect the bees, we keep them in uh, cages overnight, and you know, in uh, uh, cell builders or uh, queenless colonies. Mm-hmm. So the workers are motivated to take care of the queens and the drones that we put in there, and then we take them out the next day. We strap them into these little harnesses and. Uh, test them for their learning behavior over well, like four hours. 
So it's not, it's not the most strenuous thing and they get to eat the entire time, but inevitably <laughs> you have a couple of drones that die and you're like, what happened, buddy? Like, what's going on? I'm just picturing so, yeah, so like a honeybee field day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, just like hanging out, getting, eating, hanging out. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So yeah, so the drones are very, they're, they're pretty delicate. Definitely, we had to refine our protocol several times, several times just to, um, you know, make sure we were working, working with them in the best way possible and making sure that they were safe and happy and healthy yeah. uh, so that we could get, we could get the behavior out of them. Um, but yeah, you're, so yeah, you're exactly right. We think about the colony. It was great to think about the, the reproductive individuals here. And it was really, I mean, my, like I mentioned, Brian had done this work on, you know, has, has been doing this work for decades. And so he's identified some of the, the genetic underpinnings of this curious versus focused uh, phenotype, this behavior. But um, it was really interesting to um, be able to uh, instrumentally inseminate these queens with these drones. So the focused queens with a focused drone, uh, the curious queens with a curious drone. Um, and get those workers that exhibit these same these same behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so we're testing these behaviors in the lab. So we're we're using these behavioral assays um, using the proboscis extension reflex. So PR, where you touch their antenna uh, with sugar water and they stick their tongue out and at the same time you're blowing an odor at them. And so they'll over one or two trials, they'll associate that food is coming with that particular smell and start to stick their tongue out just to that smell. So bees are super smart and you can use this to kind of ask the bees questions like, is this something you're still interested in or are you, can you not learn this? So the focused bees, if they've experienced an odor, if in this assay, we puff this odor at them 40 times over three and a half hours. So every five minutes they get this little puff of odor. And the focused bees, if they get this odor and it's not associated with food, they don't learn it later. They say if you take that that previously exposed odor that they're familiar to versus a novel odor and give them sugar water associated with that, they learn that, that new odor very quickly. And then that odor that they experience without food, they're like, I'm not learning that. That's unimportant. So they become hmm. really focused on the odor associated with food. The general, the the curious bees, however, they we do the same assay. We give them these puffs of odor forty times over three and a half hours, over and over and over again, and then we ask them to learn that odor and a novel odor. They learn them identically, the same way. So there's no difference for them. They're like, sure, this is great. Give me out, give me that. Like they're totally. So that makes them more curious. They're still they're curious about what they already know, even if it maybe may have been unimportant or uninformative before they're mm -hmm. still open to learning about that hmm. and so that 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 is we were like okay we see these different learning behaviors in the lab in these very controlled settings what are they doing in the field what does this mean when they're actually out foraging and so then that that's what led us to the study um making these colonies so we had all focused bees all curious bees and then the 50 50 mix right mm -hmm. so we were able to put them out into these flight cages so arizona state university has this beautiful honeybee research lab and we're able to uh have we have these 
beautiful flight cages that we can put these colonies into and ask, you know, it's, it's, it's not the whole, it's not like, you know, a a full on field study where they're able to fly like, you know, football fields away or miles away. Uh Um, But they're able to fly and and do somewhat normal behaviors, which is really nice. You can control it, but it's somewhat natural, right? So it's a good balance between uh, between, you know, full on field studies and lab studies. So when we put them in the field on day one, we give them a feeder that becomes the familiar feeder. So it becomes the known feeder. It doesn't move throughout the week. It stays in the same place. It has um, the same quality of food that the rest of the feeders do. It just stays in the same spot, in the same spot, has the same odor, has the same color all week long. So the bees on day one get to forage on that and get to know that. And then on the subsequent day, so we tested them for four days, we gave them uh, uh, three days of new feeders. So that familiar feeder stayed in one spot. And then we were able to introduce uh, new feeders every subsequent day. So the what was really surprising was that so based on what we saw in the lab, we thought that the focused bees would focus in on the not the new feeders because in the in the lab they got excited about the new odors that we were giving them but they instead in the field they focused in on that familiar feeder so that feeder that stayed in that one spot they honed in and got super focused on that one feeder and that was interesting because hmm. we thought that they would be excited or or like uh, focused on novel odors like they were in the lab. But what we learned is that what's more important to them is food. So they mm-hmm. got more excited about the food that was reliable. It stayed in the same spot all week. So they got super focused. The, gen- the, the curious bees, however, just like in the lab, in the field, they visited everything. Didn't care if it moved, didn't care if it sh- the, they showed up in different spots. They would visit that familiar feeder or if another one popped up, they're totally fine switching to those other feeders. So that makes them kind of like the, you know, if you think about how plants and flowers, uh, you know, the biology of plants and flowers, um, there are some places when, or and even sometimes of year where there is a, you know, a constant, you know, flower that's, blooming and can provide food. So I think of like um, clover or dandelions in the spring where there's a sustained several weeks where there's a reliable food source and they're going crazy and, you know, they just can forage to their little heart's delight. Well, then there's some flowers like lilacs, right? Or like these more ephemeral flowers, um, fruit trees, for example, can be, can, some of them can can pop up and disappear pretty quickly. So some of these are more ephemeral. So they're popping up and dying off or there's different timing and they're popping up and dying off. So you can think about these different environments that these bees may be in um, that, you know, in even different times of the year where sometimes the curious bees are doing better for the colony and sometimes those focused bees are doing better for the colony. Mm. So if there's something reliable, those focused bees are going, they're foraging, they're they're, uh, doing their thing. And then the curious bees are able to kind of just gauge the environment and say, oh, wait, these there's something over here that actually might be pretty good. Let's yeah. go there. It has me thinking about the whole floral fidelity thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, how, like, is is that when does that pay off to be, you know, to be loyal to a certain flower versus not? Right. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Did you find that, you know, because 
Like if you're going to buy bees, our choices are Carniolans or Italians or, you know, Buckfast or Saskatraz or some of the breeds. Did you find any correlation between these breeds and their curious or focused behaviors? Historically, the lab has, Brian's lab has worked on Carniolan bees and he started on Carniolans because his lab started out in Ohio. And so he wanted like a more kind of winter hardy, um, uh, bee. And so he was working on them. And then we transitioned when we were in Arizona, we were mostly using Italian bees. So just, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of like regular stock Italian bees, um, that you get from California. And we, as far as I can tell, looking at the data, there's no difference in these bees. Um, We had a couple of Carniolan colonies as well in Arizona. And we, we were looking at drones. We were rearing Queens and drones from both colonies. And not a huge difference. We're keeping some track of uh, which which uh, breeds of, of the bees, uh, the queens and the drones came from. And we didn't see any big differences. So that, but that's really interesting. It might, again, this is just like very cursory. We're just kind of keeping track of like which colonies that we collected drones and queens from and reared queens from. Um, but that might actually require a little bit more of a of an organized study uh, <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like in, in other aspects, I can tell in my own colonies, which is the Carniolans and which are the Italians just by totally how they are and their temperaments and how much honey they put back and the size that they overwinter and, and how much food they consume during the winter and like all of those things. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then even throwing a little bit of a wrench into it, we have Africanized bees down in Arizona. So it's even, I think that would even be really cool to uh, do you do a three-way comparison with all the, with the three different um, breeds of bee that we have down there and see, mm-hmm. yeah, if there are any differences. We didn't look at that. That's something to look at, though. That's really cool. Love that. Great We're, idea. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Were there moments during your, your interactions with the bees? Like, is there any memory that stands out or any, like, funny bloopers that happened? Man, um... <laughs> That's such a great question. Behind the scenes stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I, when I'm doing this work, I have a wonderful team of undergraduate researchers that are just phenomenal. Um, So we're out there, the, the, we did this, these experiments over two years. And um, I had one student that came back both years and she was just such a rock star. So I was like, you are glutton for punishment just coming back. This is, her name is Alexa Phillips. She, she, we were out doing field work in 115, 120 degree heat. Whoa. We had to, uh, yeah, so we were, you know, we we're constantly checking on each other for water breaks and food breaks and shade breaks and like all these, all, you know, just to keep sane. Um, and that heat, it'll, it'll fry your brain. There's not a lot you can do after, a, you know, six hours outside and, uh, in the middle of the oh summer. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Hold up. Actually, you guys, since this episode was recorded, the Pacific Northwest was steeped in a weather system called a heat dome. We experienced record-breaking temperatures and I was able to have a taste of what 115 degrees feels like. You know when you're like roasting something in the oven and you open the door and your face gets blasted with hot air? It felt a lot like that, just 
all over your body. So that was definitely a, a tough part about it. But, you know, bloopers are always when you're working with bees, I feel like bloopers are always getting stung in the weirdest places, right? Like getting stung <laughs> in the face, getting stung in the, you know, like, uh, you know, I had a bee one time I was just walking and she landed on my leg and like I brought my like one leg brushed against my other leg and smushed her and she stung me. I'm like, oh. what are you doing? Like, I was just walking and like, didn't even deserve that. Like, come on. Um, but yeah, so not a, you know, a lot of it is just like, uh, just get it done, especially when it's 115 degrees, you're just trying to, trying to get it done. But, um, what, one thing, uh, one wonderful thing about doing field work is, um, being just being outside it's you know it's rough when it's 115 but in Arizona we got to see some of the you know really interesting interactions one day we saw a king snake come through the the uh field so oh the my little gosh. Field area that we were that we were in and this king snake was uh coming through so it's we have this great ecosystem we have ground squirrels we have road runners we have rattlesnakes and we have king snakes so there's a whole you know like multi-level uh you know trophic system going on so this king snake is coming through probably looking for rattlesnakes and maybe it'll eat a ground squirrel if it wants to but king snakes <laughs> are called king snakes for a reason right so it's coming through our our little field station and we hear the ground squirrels are making their little alarm calls. So me and Alexa are out there watching the ground squirrels um, call and alert all their other ground squirrel friends that this king snake's coming through. And this one ground squirrel decides to go for it. So she attacks the king snake and gets on top of the king snake and is like for like five seconds, like riding the king snake as it's oh like, like biting it, riding it as the king snake is like trying to like get her <gasps> off. And we, Alexa and I were just like screaming. We're just like, oh my God, is this really happening? <laughs> so that was actually, so yeah, that was one of the cooler moments. Like that was not bee related. It was yeah. just like, we just happened to be outside quietly watching our bees and just doing going about our field work. And we Suddenly, just a squirrel attacks a snake. <laughs> exactly. You're just like, whoa, man, like that squirrel is just gonna, she's just going for it. So yeah, it was really so pretty interesting. Very did, lucky. Did she make it? She did. Yeah. She scared wow. the, she like, the king snake, like just kind of shook her off and like, he, he afterwards he wasn't in a rush he was just like I'm just gonna cruise on through and just whatever but he like she I think she gave him that little ground squirrel gave it <laughs> gave that king snake some motivation to get out of there and not mess around with any oh of her, her nests so that's pretty cool it was a cool situation we want we see road runners just picking off bees at the colony they'll come over and just like eat them right off the oh, front of the colony wow. That's pretty me, fun. Me. Yeah, it's the whole it's a wild ride. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they they are di they are dinosaur looking birds too. They're really funky. They're pretty fun. They're pretty fun. So yeah, so we had a beautiful little. I mean, again, it's hot, but these little moments make it worth it for sure. Yeah. Where did your interest in entomology and specifically bees begin? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. So, um. I, so I'm a first generation college attendee, graduate, all the things. Both my parents didn't even graduate high school. Wow. Um, so yeah, so a lot of, a lot of my like interest 
started when I was younger and just loved bugs. I would collect them. I would take the, so I grew up in, in Western New York and I would take the little cicada shells, the little molts off of the tree and paint them with my nail polish and like oh. eat them and like catch, catch all kinds of bugs and rescue my first sting ever from a stinging insect was from a yellow jacket. I found a yellow jacket in a puddle in like October. So it's probably now that I know about, you know, yellow jacket biology is probably a, a, a female overwintering. And so a potential queen for the next year. So I found her in a little puddle, started warming her up with my breath, like <sighs> on her. <laughs> Stung me right in the face, like right on the lip. So, like I was just a weird kid, like loved insects, collected roly polies, and like you know just all that stuff. And my parents were so awesome. Like they never, I bring the weirdest stuff inside and like have stuff in jars, and they never got mad. They never like they never were grossed out by it. They're like, okay, cool, honey, like good job, and like you know. But then, you know, as someone, you know, you don't, I don't, I didn't know that you could do research on insects or like on anything. Like I just thought that, you know, having an interest in biology or like the natural world may, you would become a doctor. Like that's the only thing, you know, in, in high school, even that I thought I could do with biology, with my love of, of biology and learning about the world. Hmm. And so when I went to college thinking I was going to go and, you know, be a doctor or some kind of health field, um, I started learning about doing research and realizing you could do research for a living and get paid to do it. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, I want to learn. I, I, I started working in a lab doing uh, research on flatworms and these terrestrial flatworms, and they were super amazing. Um, so yeah, it's just one of these things where the more, the more classes I took and the more research I did and, you know, labs that I was in, um, just broadened my my thought on you know like my oh my god I can do this for a living and then I took an evolutionary biology class and in that you know you learn things like um you know fur color or feather color or beak size or you know all these things evolve like Darwin's finches right their beak size they evolve for the, the environment that you know uh that they exist in and they're selected for but I'd never really considered that behavior evolves mm -hmm, that like mm -hmm. how we learn and what we learn and how quickly we learn and all of, you know, these, these different behaviors, what mates we choose, um, what, what food we forage for all of these potentially like, you know, learned or behavioral characteristics, those are selected too. And they can evolve and they're associated with under underlying genes and gene networks, which are really, you know, much more complicated than we like to admit, even those of us who study this stuff. Um, and so that really just blew my mind. I was like, wait, behavior can evolve. And then you layer on something like a honeybee colony where one bee can have one behavior, just like these curious and these focused bees. You can have one bee that does one behavior, another bee that does another behavior. and the synergism, the, you know, what emerges from the interactions of these bees and of these behaviors is something totally different than the individual, right? Mm -hmm. So that I, I like blew, blew my mind. So I graduated from undergrad and took a year to apply to grad school because I wanted to study social behavior and I was open to, you know, birds or fish or whatever, but I was really, my first choice was, was social insects, particularly honeybees. And I worked in a cancer research lab 
And I kept thinking about cancer as a social organism. Like, how do these cells work together? Why, mm. why do these cancer cells recognize each other and like work together and manipulate the body to like spread while like hijacking the system? Like, it just like blew my mind. I was like, my, and so my boss was like, you need to go to grad school. Like, this is crazy. Like you, like being a doctor, or like being in a hospital setting is not going to answer your question. You need to ask these <laughs> questions in a, in a better system. So I got, I applied to grad school and I luckily got accepted into my first choice. Oh my goodness. Uh, CU Boulder working with honeybees with Mike Breed. And it was awesome. It was so, it, yeah. So yeah, just, you know, g- weird questions. And it's so funny to think back and like, why did I do that? And you're just like, you know, <laughs> like, luckily, I, I'm so lucky that like, my passion and my desire my, and my need to put myself through college and make some money turned out to be working in research labs and actually getting the experience that I needed, you know? So it was really funny how that stuff works out. Amazing. That's such an incredible, yeah. like, origin story. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It's like I'd never done any beekeeping before I went to grad school. And then here, there I was like, yeah, that's funny because like, you'd like assume people that work with bees are just you know, they have a hive and, and that's their hobby yeah. or they they do it as a business, but totally researcher doesn't, it's not the first thing that pops to my mind when I think of somebody who's working with bees. No, totally. And, and I, and a lot of people, it's funny, it's probably about 50, 50 of the people who I meet in academia who study bees. Most, well, I wouldn't say most, but a good amount do start out like, um, uh, having colonies or having grown up with their parents having colonies and just being fascinated with bees and wanting to die, you know, having that experience and wanting to dive into it. Um, or people who kind of come from these questions. And I guess this is kind of where I came from, uh, having these kind of questions and being like, no, I think these are the right system to ask these questions in. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's really, it's, it's funny. I mean, either way, I think, you know, people are just, these are just so awesome and you can ask so many cool questions and people just love them and they're great outreach tools. Also, I'm sure you know this as well when you you bring an observation colony anywhere and you know, kids, adults, old, old, young, like doesn't matter. Like any gender race culture is just obsessed with bees. They're so cool. So they they are like a, a key to unlocking a community. They do, absolutely. Unlike any other thing that I've ever worked with before. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's one of the things, like, I I work with many people who um, study other bees and other native bee species, and they get pretty, they get a little upset at honeybees and honeybee researchers uh, <laughs> because honeybees are prolific. They they yeah. compete for with, uh, with other bees. They're non-native to North America, right? So uh, to, to the Americas in general, I should say. And um, so people, you know, doing work on native bees get a little pissed at them and or get a little upset at them. Sorry, I probably shouldn't say that word. Oh, you can um, you could say anything on this show. <laughs> OK, cool. So, yeah, so they get a little upset at, at honeybees and bee researchers and, and beekeepers. But I think like like you said, they, they unlock they're they're like the gateway bee, right? Like mm-hmm. the, uh, most people who care about bees um, and if they do care about native bees, they 
most often started out caring about honeybees or learning about honeybees, finding them fascinating, and then learning that there were all these other native bee and other types of bee species that are solitary or subsocial. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, or eusocial, like bumblebees. Yeah. And like, so I think we have to give give honeybees respect where it's due. Again, they're not perfect. They're little disease vectors and they can be pretty tough. Like yeah, they yeah. can be kind of jerks and Africanized bees in, in Arizona and throughout the Southwest are tough and they're, you know, they kill people. It's really tough. Um, but they, you know, like people, they are still fascinating. They are still like attention grabbers for, uh, for people, for anybody. For, for Yeah. yeah. Well, this brings me to um, your your topic of honeybees being the gateway bee and introducing people into the world of native bees. We have a mutual yeah. friend, Andoni Melithopoulos from Oregon State yes, University. I saw you were on his podcast, Pollination, a while back. I was. Um, yep. And, you know, he started the Oregon Bee Project. And exactly. he, with, yep. with that program, I mean, it's been amazing to watch how it has completely taken off and there's he does so- <laughs> such great work and i know he, it's it's he's an absolute godsend for sure for the the oregon bees oh my goodness he's wonderful yeah and i i really think that we're going to see other projects designed around that model popping up around the country and the amount totally of, i think uh, yeah <laughs> His his work as as someone who does extension, you know, and Donnie, he's he is employed at uh, Oregon State, I believe, mm-hmm. and he um, he's an extension person, right? So his job is just the the connection of agriculture to the community, and he does he has totally revamped you're exactly right totally revamped that model of using things like podcasts, using things like like to, to get everybody excited and involved, right? Like, I mean, focusing on podcasts is great for younger generations, but like people who are like my parents, they don't really listen to podcasts. It's like not very common. Some people do. I don't want to super generalize, but like yeah, my yeah. parents, have, I don't think have ever listened to a podcast. So <laughs> um, like, and you know, so people, people in their sixties or whatever, like my parents, it's a little, and that's a lot of beekeepers, right? Like a lot of beekeepers tend to be a little bit older and, you yeah. know, so trying to to create this like broad outreach program is really tough. And so he does the, he does these beautiful little like mailers and flyers that he's putting out and like, like that are, are have beautiful graphics on them. Um, he's doing this podcast. He has beautiful websites. I know he's, it's, he, he's totally and he's humble about to it too. He's like I incredibly he humble is. about it, and um, you know, we all, everybody that meets him, just thinks that he's the coolest. I haven't he had him on my show yet, so Andoni, oh, if world, you're listening, collide. You should do. If that. you're yeah. listening to this, I am calling you out right now yes. to come on my show. Needs to happen. <laughs> Needs to happen. Do it. Oh my goodness, Andoni, do it. <laughs> What has been your favorite piece of honeybee research that has come out that you have not been a part of? Oh my God, that's such a good question. <laughs> oh man. 
Man, that is such that's such a good hard question. Well, let um, me distract you with another topic yeah. or another something. So this morning I have a friend. Um, his name is uh, Marvin uh, Jordana, and he's down in Los Angeles. And we met in person earlier this year at the Natural Beekeeping Conference. But thanks to social media, cool. you usually become friends with somebody online before you ever meet them. And he will send me little articles or like things to think about that are not part of like your typical conversation with other beekeepers but he he sent me a message and i i kind of want to see if i could look it up on my um phone really quick because i don't want to mess it up so hold on just a second let's see okay ethyl oleate pheromones are you familiar with that yeah we've done um uh, we've done a little bit of work, um, in, uh, when I was in Mike Breed's lab, there was an undergrad student working on ethyl oleate. Um, so I said it right. Yep. Okay. And <laughs> it's a, so one thing that I think that, um, in, um, so I'm, I'm just doing a quick lookup of it as well. Yeah. Um, that we were interested in it or the lab that I was in, in Mike Reed's lab, he has historically worked on nest mate recognition and how honeybees use different pheromones or different uh, cuticular chemicals um, to, to recognize nest mates. And so I think that there was something in, there was some work he was doing with ethyl oleate on um, nest mate recognition or some other type of, um, of, uh, you know how how this this pheromone or it, it's it's probably like it's I think it's a component of of a pheromone. So it's, I mean pheromones are complex mixtures of things. Um, I I immediately so, googled it because I hadn't heard of it before. And what I yeah. what I read um, was that when foragers are finding abundant amounts of food, they can use that pheromone to sort of. Uh, slow down the development of nurse bees to keep them nurse bees just a little bit longer so that they can support the brood rearing. Oh, wow. So I'm picturing so like division of labor. Stuff. Yeah. Like, so our, our colonies that are transitioning um, from like spring into early summer are probably just saturated with, with ethyl oleate. Yeah. Yep. That's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. Like, Hey, let, like we need, we need the brood rearing to take priority here. So yeah. Okay. Sure so that. what would happen if you here, I'm making an experiment for you. <laughs> I love it. You, you've given me one already. So yeah, let's do so, it. So like what would happen if you took a colony that was not in that like phase of their, their growth curve, if you took a colony that was on, you know, their fall taper and if you introduced more of that pheromone into the colony, would it have the same effect? Oh, if not man. coming from forager bees, like would they would they have the same response to it if it was just put in the hive? That's a, such a good question, and that really taps into the the like idea of. Um, like sensory reception and how the the bees would if they're going to be that sensitive to it like um oh man like what's a good example like just how like i'm sure you could probably come up with 
other systems where, you know, like plants or other animals just aren't sensitive to something after some certain, like, I don't know, if you wonder if it's Uh like a, like a imprinting stage or something, right? Like little, like ducks have this imprinting or like most young animals have, not most, some young, young animals have an imprinting phase where there's this window of opportunity where you can imprint, they can imprint on a lot of different things. And then after that window closes, they're no longer able, they don't have that sensory reception or part of their brain that's Mm -hmm. plastic Mm -hmm. that they can do that. Right. So you actually, yeah. So that's a really good question. You wonder if fall bees would even be sensitive to that. Or Or if it is just the young nurse bees that would be like more flexible in their, their development. Right. And it's funny because my my guess is that they would be um, because you we say the same thing about winter bees, right? That winter bees like winter bees are generalists and they, you know, they don't forage and all this stuff. But it's it's really just a feedback from the environment and how much food is coming in that cha- that mm-hmm. kind of like slow them down and make them like, you know, be a generalist bee instead of, you know, going through the distinct division of labor uh-huh. because there's so much less happening in the environment. The day lengths are shorter, the temperatures are cooler, or, you know, depending on where you are, where you are in the world. Um, but, you know, most in, in most temperate regions where honeybees are, um, yeah, like these these signals are changing their kind of behavior and their physiology that lead to these behavioral differences. So there's really I I I I'm, I maybe you know broadly you know stroking here like <laughs> drawing broad strokes here, but um, I don't think there's really that much uh, really physiologically different in like if you just took winter bees that you know like a winter bee and put them in the same like day length period and all this stuff they're not physiologically different than summer bees as far as like being inherently different right Mm -hmm. they're genetically and everything the same it's just the environment that's changing that's causing their physiologies to change that cause their behaviors to change right so there's nothing inherently different about those bees um it's just the kind of environment that they're in that changes their their sensory physiology and all that stuff. So my guess is that they would be sensitive to it. And it sounds like the ethyloate does the the opposite of, or maybe works in conjunction with brood pheromone. Cause I think brood uh-huh. pheromone does something similar, right? It, it causes, at least it, it urges the foragers to collect more pollen. I know that that's like a commercial use of, of brood pheromone to, to get more pollen coming into your colonies. But um, brood I, I think didn't does the know same they thing. could like, do that. Yeah, I so there's um, oh my god. Yeah, there's a company. I think a Canadian company. Oh man, I worked with them a long time ago. Um, um, who used to? I don't know if they do anymore, but um, they create. Oh yeah, uh, uh, there's a product. This is from 2012. Um, there's a product called Super Boost, or was a product called Super Boost. Um, that was a chemical that mimicked brood pheromone and it caused an increase in pollen collection. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's something that, so the, the brood give off this pheromone that says like, Hey, we need like, you know, colonies need more protein when they're producing a bunch of brood. Well, so so now I'm getting all excited because would Varroa mites be attracted to that synthetic version of the hormone? (laughs) That's yeah. Right. Exactly. That's a good question. So could you potentially bait them and use it as a trap? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I I don't know if there's any been done any work done on that, but we can yeah, go down so many rabbit holes. So many rabbit holes. <laughs> See, exactly. Jack of all trades over here. Oh my gosh. Well, you'll have to come back on the show again sometime to talk more about all this stuff, and maybe I would love that. I'd love to hear some listener feedback too, or listener hypotheses on different things that we could talk about. Cause oh my goodness, this is my, my favorite thing is spitballing. This is my yeah, favorite, so yeah, yeah, we jammed today. Absolutely, it's so fun. You gotta, you should come come do your PhD with me. Come do. A oh my degree. gosh, that I I um I yeah I haven't even done four years of college. Yeah, <laughs> get your four year degree and come work with me. Oh, that'd be so rad. Yeah, I think if if I could turn back time and like know what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was younger, like 20 years younger, I would have been all over the entomology scene. I don't know. I yeah, I mean, it sounds like you you're also getting the best of both worlds. Right? You get to geek <laughs> out and ask cool questions and meet cool people. I think yeah. I think yeah. It, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's not a bad gig. <laughs> well, Chelsea this has been so much fun. Oh, you did. You asked the question about bee research that I wasn't involved with. <gasps> yes. And there's so much. There's so much amazing honey bee research. But the one thing that comes comes to my mind is the uh, bumblebee research. I think it came from Lars Chitka's lab, where they had they were training the bumblebee to move the ball to get a reward, and then the bees learned better. The bumblebees learned better when they watched another bee, bumblebee move it, and then they painted a little popsicle stick in you know with black and yellow stripes and move the move the ball with the stick and they learn just as well with the I think they learn just as well with the painted popsicle stick to move the ball so the bees that watched another another bumblebee or the bumblebee looking popsicle stick learned better the then learned faster than the ones that just had to figure it out themselves um, or if they just had a plain popsicle stick and moved it and the bumblebee didn't learn as quickly as if it looked like a bee moving it. They're like, picture yourself doing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. So there's some, so it, I mean, it's again, like those little brains and those little bodies are so cool and they do they they can socially learn. I mean, come on, like a lot of humans can't learn socially. Like, <laughs> right. these are so cool. Bees are so awesome. Oh, well, I'm so glad you remembered that because I completely forgot yeah. that I had even asked the question. So. No, Thank it's you. okay. Sorry, I sorry I stumbled on it a little bit. I'm like, that's that okay. good research. <laughs> oh my god. Well, thank you, Chelsea, and um, I Thanks, will be Amanda. including like links to your website. You have an awesome website and social thank media you. for people to come and find you and follow you and all the cool things that you're doing. That'd be great. I'd love that. Yeah, and I'm I'm a professor at Marquette University. I just got hired here, so. If there's any listeners out there who's interested in a, a grad position, um, a PhD position, I'm recruiting. Or if you're looking for a cool place to go to grad, go to undergrad. Marquette's an awesome school. Come be a biology major. Mention Beekeeper Confidential in your application. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you learn about this position? <gasps> Very cool. Well, Chelsea, no. thank Thanks, you. Amanda. This like totally makes my my week, my month. 
Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for doing such an important podcast. I've listened to a couple of your episodes. Thank you. It's really important work. We're just having a good time here. (laughs) It's the whole point, right? Yeah. All right. Well, take care. And I'll talk with you soon. (laughs) Sounds great. Thank you. Bye. Going back and listening to this conversation has brought me so much joy. And I hope that it brought you joy too. I'll be including links to Chelsea's website and social media at beekeeperconfidential.com. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.